Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello there. Welcome along. It's a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week, we're taking a peek through the working day of Abby Elphinstone. She's a fantastic children's author. And we talk about that, about writing for kids, how you need to pitch a story for a 10-year-old, and why so many people always get it wrong. Also, you can learn why she thinks her first story was rejected so many times and then what she did to change it when she figured out the secret. And you can hear how she learned to give herself a break. I've learned to be much kinder to myself. I used to be, I have such high expectations and and sort of really want to write a certain amount of words every day. If I am in my writing shed and it's not a dream day as in terms of um, I'm just not finding the words... I don't tend to just get up and go for a walk. I just sort of set, sit and let things percolate, just, you know, drift around a bit. And I just aim to write a sentence that I think I'm really proud of or a paragraph rather than thinking, let's get the entire chapter done. So stay there. It's all on the way in this week's writer's routine. Yes. Hello. Welcome to Writer's Routine. Uh, My name's Dan Simpson. Thank you so much for downloading us, giving us a listen. Maybe this is just a sample. You've clicked play curiously. Well, I tell you what, do me a favour, download the whole lot. Help the figures. Cheers. This is the show where we take a comb through the working day of a successful author to try and steal some of the secrets of their schedule. I always feel fancy with a bit of alliteration. Uh, Now, this week we're chatting to the amazing kids author, Abby Elphinstone. She's just so vibrant, so effervescent, so ebullient. I told you about alliteration, didn't I? Um, She's fantastic at making these huge fantasy worlds and then getting it down, making it understandable for like a 10 year old. Uh, We talk about how she dreams up these ideas and these massive concepts and then makes them believable. Uh, She's published six books, I think. There were three in her initial Dreamcatcher series. And she's just started a new one called The Unmapped Chronicles. It's called Rumble Star. Uh, it's, It's all about a world that creates weather and magically gives it to the universe. It stars Casper Tock. And we talk about Casper and how Abby knew what he needed to be, how he needed to appear, the things that he needed to do, the quirks and traits he needed to have 
to make sure kids would be on his side. We also talk about how it was inspired by C.S. Lewis and Philip Pullman. Uh, We chat about mood boards and also how she works her writing around travelling through the country and also very simply being a mum. And we chat about why travelling to strange and remote places all around the world gives her ideas. We'll also get a top writing tip from an award-winning debut author. That's on the way. Stick around for that. First, let's get into it with Abby Elphinstone, and we start, as always, with what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. So if I'm lucky and I've got a full writing day, um, I write in a shed in my garden, which sounds really glamorous, but I live in London, so the garden is the size of this little box room that we're in now. Um, So it's a small writing shed, and all the windows are... Well, it's glass-fronted, so it's kind of a view out over the garden other people's gardens and the sort of skyscape of London um inside the writing shed we've got bookcase full of um research books non-fiction as well as children's books um, because I write children's books um an armchair for reading um and a desk where I write my books um on the walls we've got lines from famous children's books um which years ago I used at my wedding I hung them up all all around the marquee so it's things like Winnie the Pooh lines um people say nothing is impossible but I do nothing every day um so I put that one and stare at it when I'm missing my deadlines um and I have a candle some sort of lame attempt at relaxation which I sort of sometimes like when I'm feeling particularly stressed um but I have a ticking time bomb as well on my desk I have a baby monitor so I write and I've got a toddler at home and so every second I can get to write counts and often it's writing when he's asleep so I'm just there looking at the monitor thinking don't cry don't cry let me get to the end of this chapter this or this scene or whatever you mentioned the the research books on on the walls yeah Uh, Now, as a kid's author, I'd imagine people that aren't well-versed in kid's fiction may raise an eyebrow at that and think, well, research on kid's books, like, Mm. um, why is that necessary? What types of things are you researching? Because your news stories, especially uh, are setting fantasy worlds, you know, you're talking about big ideas for kids. Mm. What type of research are you doing for these stories? So, my most recent book um, last year was called Sky Song, and it's set in a fictional snowy kingdom called Erkenwald, um, which, yeah, is fantasy. Um, but I think the best fant- fantasy is grounded in a sense of belief or reality. So I base my worlds on places that I visited. So I've been up to the Arctic, to North Norway, um, dog sledding across the ice and watching orcas dive for herring and watching the northern lights flicker across the sky. Um, and so that world that I create, which, yeah, has... Um, a frozen black ice lake called the Devil's Dance Floor has icebergs called the Groaning Splinters very much in the heart of a fantasy land but it is based on somewhere concrete, somewhere real Um, and I think that does anchor a story more and make it more believable. You can go wilder with the magic if you've given it a sort of a central spot that actually does exist Um, and even the the characters, there's... um, uh, uh, an eagle huntress called Eska, one of the main, the, the heroine of Sky Song. And I went out to the Kazakh eagle hunters in Mongolia and lived with them for a couple of weeks when I was researching her character. I wanted to write about a character that lives on the very edges of our world and is, isn't is necessarily accepted by other people. And the book is about belonging and coming to understand who your tribe is, who your people are. So you're dealing with massive themes um, and in a way concrete settings, but you're wrapping them up in fantasy. So yeah, there's books on, um, I don't know, the landscape in the Arctic. Um, I'm trying to think, um, Arctic Dreams by Barry Lopez. I read that to research 
the Arctic after having been there as well, but just to um, further research. Um, so there's a lot of nonfiction. Uh, Robert McFarlane as well. He's one of the best um, nonfiction writers about nature for me. Nan Shepherd writes brilliantly about the Cairngorms in Scotland. I like to write about wild, snowy places. So often it's, yeah, it's, it's nonfiction like that that I use as... As research. And when you're going off on your research, mm. this has got nothing to do with where you write. I'm, <laughs> okay. ju I'm just curious, how is it all sorted out? How are you finding these people who are off in the middle of nowhere to spend time with them? How are you getting in touch with them? Do you just turn up with a sled one day? Pretty much. Um, now, I saw a photo by an Israeli photographer of, um, he's called Asher Svedensky, and he took a photo of Aishilpan, who is one of the only eagle huntresses in Mongolia. So there's a tribe of people in Mongolia, the Kazakh eagle hunters, who use golden eagles to hunt for them. And they treat the eagles really well. Um, the hunters, or the huntress in my case, that I was going out to visit, um, they use the, f the eagles who, I think they catch foxes, marmots, and wolves. They use the fur of those animals to make hats and clothes and it's freezing out of Mongolia in the winter. Uh, my eyelashes froze shut in the night when I stayed in a in a gur, a little felt hut out there. So they're using golden eagles to find what animals they make clothing out of. Um, and so when I saw this photo that there was only one eagle huntress in Mongolia, I thought, wow, you know, she belongs in a book. And wouldn't it be incredible to get out and meet her? And I knew that there was an eagle hunting festival where the best hunters in the land gathered in a place called, I think it's it Ulgi. Yes, it's west, way on the west of Mongolia. So you have to fly right to the east to Ulaanbaatar and then you go west to Ulgi. And um, I then, when I discovered that the festival was there and that she could be there, I got in touch with, I think it was like Native Eye Travel or something. They specialise in like super bespoke, crazy, outdoorish adventures. Um, and I said, look, is there any way you could put together a vague itinerary of what I could do if I went out there? Um, and basically just fixed me up with like a translator and a, um, a van. Um, and they did. So they put the structures in place to make it happen. Um, but because Mongolia is as it is, it, it's, it's a wilderness essentially when you get out there. Um, a lot of the itinerary, which sounds very grand, was shot to pieces. So it was more just a framework, like I said, like a driver, um, someone to translate when we went to the eagle hunters themselves. Um, yeah. Let me take you back to your shed for a second. Yes. Well, actually, let me take you back before the shed existed. Were you writing at all before the shed was in your garden? Yeah. Or, or did you think, Roald Dahl wrote in a shed, if I'm going to be a kid's yeah. author, I need to do this, let's build one and then I'll get to work. It's like a prerequisite, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I didn't have that luxury for a long time. Um, I was a teacher for five years in a secondary school, taught English, and I wrote after I'd finished marking GCSE and A-level coursework. Um, and I think for five years I wrote and I sent f three books off to 96 literary agents and they were all rejected. Um, and I didn't have a shed then. <laughs> I um, was just writing in my bedroom, writing at the kitchen table. Um, but I found it very difficult to balance the creativity that you were dishing out to kids and trying to you know, embolden them and inspire them and then to have some left over for your own writing I found that really difficult but um it was nothing to do with having a shed or not that that was just a luxury later on in life um but yeah at the time I didn't have a shed I just wrote wherever I could let me bring you inside the shed then you said that on the walls you've got these slightly motivational quotes from uh, children's fiction that you've enjoyed yeah it, it, if I were to walk in when you're in the middle of writing a, a new story would I see evidence of what that story is around the walls have you got post-it notes maybe that tell you about the plot More you on the a big floor, line you just see scrunched up paper everywhere sort <laughs> of a scene of I don't know distress um uh what would you see 
yeah, I, I'm dyslexic. So um, my approach to writing is very visual. Um, I draw my way into my stories. So I have an idea that I might want to write about. Um, but the plot is obviously hopelessly tangled at the beginning, can't really see my way through. So I draw a fictional world and I imagine a journey through that world and that becomes the plot. Um, so what you've got in the writing shed is usually a series of maps that are hand-drawn by me. Some are onto Ordnance Survey maps themselves if I'm trying to write somewhere really specific, so not necessarily a fantasy land, um, somewhere real. Um, and some are just me drawing on blank sheets of paper and they're pinned up on the windows. Um, Post-it notes as well, if I get ideas that I'm sort of not quite ready to write about but don't want to forget. Um, I tell kids when I go and visit them in schools that I have an ideas collector, which is essentially a shoebox full of post-it notes. But yeah, definitely post-it notes, maps, um, and a mood board sometimes. Um, if I have time, often now I don't have time. I used to make mood boards for the books, <laughs> but now it's just like, just get to the end of it. <laughs> yeah, it's so a dream days. I've got childcare and it's just writing, no touring, nothing. Then it's um, head out to the writing shed around sort of, I don't know, 7.30 in the morning. Um, just after breakfast and then I can concentrate for huge stretches of time um, which is great because I can just go down there very intense but I just sort of block myself off I don't listen to music I don't see people sometimes I forget to have lunch until kind of like I don't know three or four um, but normally I'll, I'll yeah write till about lunchtime come back into the house have lunch have a sandwich for half an hour and get back out there and write till six when then usually I'll go back and look after my toddler or whatever then but um, yeah I don't go out to writer's retreats or write in a cafe. Um, partly it's more expensive going out to a cafe if you're at home, it's, it's free. But um, I find it, I find I'm easily distracted if there are external things buzzing on around me. Um, but if I'm in that shed on my own, I can sit there and just write and write and write. And I don't know if it's, if it's because I have to. Um, as a mother, you've got to be unswerving in your quest to finish a story because you have so little time. Um, and so when I get there, I know that, I've got to work hard. Talk to me about th that time that you are working then. You say, I mean, if you're managing to write for almost 11 hours uninterrupted, mm. how furiously are you going at it? How, yeah. uh, do, do you tend to write in bursts? Uh, do, do you ca uh, occasionally find yourself, uh, you know, roaming away in your mind, you're being distracted, and then you need to drag yourself yeah. back in? Talk to me about that time. So, so it's not as if I get into the writing shed and hammer out 10,000 words a day. That doesn't happen. <laughs> um, Normally, um, I'll aim to write a chapter a day. That will be the aim in my head. I'll say, I really want to get to the end of this chapter today. I don't know how many words a chapter is, maybe 3,000 or something. Um, and then the next day, I'll spend editing that chapter. And then I'll move on to the next one. There's normally two goes at a chapter before I, I'm happy with it and move on to the next one. Um, but there are some days that the words just tumble out and I feel like I'm in the flow and exactly what I want to say. Um, the planning, partly because I'm dyslexic, is is rigorous. So I, I do have a really clear sort of almost scaffolding to write from. Um, after I've drawn these maps, I then do bullet points of various chapters and then I often follow those. And sometimes I veer off piste, but I think the maps and the stupid, very mundane bullet points give me the confidence and the scaffolding I need to then feel more confident and, and, and go off piste. What if it's not a dream day? What, what um, if, so, you, you know, soon when, when the book's out, you, you'll be on tour, yeah. you'll be traveling all around the country. How do you fit in your work around that? Um, I've learned to be much kinder to myself. I used to be, I have such high expectations and and sort of really want to write a certain amount of words every day. 
that doesn't happen anymore. And so uh, I think when the days, if I am in my writing shed and it's not a dream day as in terms of um, I'm just not finding the words, um, I don't tend to just get up and go for a walk. I just sort of set, sit and let things percolate, just, you know, drift around a bit. And I just aim to write a sentence that I think I'm really proud of or a paragraph rather than thinking, let's get the entire chapter done. Um, and usually I end up feeling, yeah, really, really happy with just one paragraph. I'd rather that than writing a particularly crap um, <laughs> whole um, chapter. What if you're doing other things during the day? So today you're here, you're chatting to me. Um, yeah. As I say, next week you'll be off on tour. Do you try and fit your writing around other things or do you prefer to have a to only go at it on a blank day? I could never start a book on a day where it's slightly cut up and I'm doing lots of things, like maybe an interview or a school visit or picking up my son from childcare or whatever. I think starting a book for me is a big thing. I need a, a whole day in a shed and I need to feel confident that I can get you know, through this. It's a huge thing when you look at the blank screen and the cursor just flashing and you think, have I got another 70,000 words in me? I don't know. So I need to have a whole day to start a book. But once I'm in, um, and it is a day when I'm out and about, um, like on a train, I write furiously on trains um, on my way to school visits, then I will just sit down and think, right, where was I? And carry on writing. Um, again, I'm not aiming for something perfect. I'm just aiming for the words to to be there and then I go back and fix them or polish them in the next round. Previous books have stemmed from far-flung adventures in yeah, the Arctic, Mongolia, whatever. Um, the idea for this book started as a what if in the writing shed um, and I started to think back to all the incredible skies I'd seen on my adventures, like pink sunrises, orange sunsets, um, rain that uh, I don't know, makes waterfalls roar and conjures rainbows, whatever, all these kind of things. And I started thinking, what if there's a secret kingdom in charge of the weather. What, it's, what if it's not science and geography behind the weather, but magic? Um, and when I started imagining these secret kingdoms, four of them, the unmapped kingdoms that don't show up on any map, they just started to grow in my mind. I started to see them visually in terms of the setting. I started imagining various magical creatures in there um, and objects and modes of transport, um, you know, hot air balloons powered by dragon fire, um, canoes with magical armchairs in, <laughs> um, bathtub lifts. Uh, so it, it is a bit off the wall, a bit crazy. Um, but it did just start as a as a what if? What if it's not science and geography behind the weather, but magic? So it was a daydream. It was just a wonder, an idea, um, and thinking back to, I think, yeah, the skies I'd seen, and I've loved the natural world since I was a little girl. I grew up in the middle of Scotland, um, and I think I'm a writer first and foremost because the wilderness made me one. So I wanted to write a series of books that encourage children to look up and out from the screens that dominate their lives and to see how beautiful our planet is um, but also to see that it's pretty fragile so if you're going to write a book about the weather it's inevitable you're going to draw in climate change um, or climate crisis as it now is called or you know global warming and deforestation and plastic in the well, ocean. Let me ask you what came first then you said you wanted to write a story that encouraged kids to mm. look up from their screen to think mm. about everything that's out there and also you're going on these flights of fancies in your sheds mm. what do you remember coming first did you intend to write a story that got kids thinking uh, about things bigger than what's on their screen and then you were forcing through these these what ifs as mm. you just said yeah yeah or was it the reverse of that did you have this idea and then think hang on maybe this would also work with that thing that I've got squirreled away. It's funny when you ask someone to think back to the origin of a story, I'm like, where, how did it start? I think the best children's books have this 
indefinable quality um, that sets them apart. And it's often, I think, a sense of wonder. And I think I remember thinking about wonder and thinking, what, when you are 10 years old, if you, you know, you're 10 years old, a kid, and you think, what about the world fills me with wonder? And it's often something like thunder or a rainstorm or seeing a rainbow or freshly fallen snow, that promise that, you know, there's an untouched kingdom of snow and ice out there. And I think that I wanted to write a book. This was the very first thing. I wanted to write a book that would fill children with a sense of wonder at the natural world. And the idea then for the kingdoms producing weather, because I thought, well, if you're going to talk about wonder in the natural world, you've got to get kids looking up and out from your screens. And how do you look up? If you look you know, far enough up, you're looking at the sky. I think this is how it started, that it was wonder at the natural world, then looking up, so it went to the screens, and then it was sort of all of the kingdoms. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you for trying that out. <laughs> I know it's really hard. What came next then? So you've got this this grand idea, what if, you know, another kingdom controlled our weather? But then it needs to be plot focused, especially children's fiction needs to have a driving plot and needs to have this adventure. What did you do next? How did you formulate this idea, this 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 concept into the book that's now in front of me? So in terms of the actual mechanics of it, um, and this is going to make writing seem so concrete and I don't know, dull, but perhaps it's the dyslexia kicking in that I I do this, but I drew a bar chart (laughs) about rising fall and um, the crescendos and the diminuendos of action, basically. I wanted to write a book where, for children, that that the suspense built, and then maybe there were some moments where the characters develop, because it's an adventure story on the surface, but underneath it's a story about unexpected friendships and learning to be brave. So you've got to have several arcs that you're working on. You've got the adventure itself, um, and when you're writing kids' books with adventures, it's often about taking the kid on a quest, a character on a quest too, and then going through various different settings in this fictional world. Very and then, quickly, yeah. sorry, the, the bar chart that you've got. Yeah. How do you know where these beats are going to be? Is, is that through just experience? Is it by learning? Is it by reading? Yeah, I read a lot of children's books. So I read a lot in the market that's out there. I read adult books as well. Um, I don't read much adult fantasy. Maybe I should. The bar chart is, God, it sounds so odd when I talk about it aloud. Why do I do all these things to write a book? Um, But how do I know the stages of action? I think that it's just something I've learned through my editor feeding back on my own books and also from um, reading other people's books. Um, But ultimately, there's a, a rise in action to a sort of climactic scene and... I write, I'm writing in this series, the Unmapped Chronicles, portal books where children are from our world are finding a way through to the Unmapped Kingdoms and then they come home again. So there's a quieter beginning in our world. Then there's that moment, that world-crossing moment, like Lucy Pevensey with the wardrobe door, Will with the knife in Subtle Knife um, by Philip Pullman. Then the action builds. There's a quest. There's a journey. Um, and I think the best advice I was given for writing adventure books were, for children was... You know, when you get to the end of one chapter and the characters have overcome one hurdle, there's got to be a hook in, uh, another problem materialises. And it's not to say that that makes the plot relentless because you do need pauses. You need moments where your characters grow and develop and maybe the themes you're talking about have room to breathe. But you do need to keep kids hooked and entertained, especially because with a book you're competing with other mediums like... Um, TVs and you know Fortnite or whatever they're doing on their screens so 
the bar chart <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of grows in size um, till the big sort of climactic end scene in the Rumble Star. It's in the smoking chimneys, these volcanoes um, to the east of the land. Um, there's a big battle. Um, and then you come back to the castle as a celebratory feast and then you move back into our world, which I call the far away. And the ending is quieter. Um, and I like the idea that you can take a child to the very depths of the smoking chimneys, volcanoes, or to the heart of Shiverbark Forest, a forest in Rumblestar. Um, but at the end, you take them home. And I think it gives kids this um, sense of, I don't know, a belief that they too could go on this journey um, just simply from their armchair or from their bed or from their classroom chair. You know, they could go to this imagined world and then be brought back somewhere they, they recognize. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We'll be back with more from Abby in just a sec. Now, this is episode number... I don't know, like 65 or something ridiculous like that. And if any of the numerous authors uh, that we've brought you have given some advice, which has really helped the way you tell your stories, why don't you say thank you to the show and help us out uh, and become a supporter on Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash writers routine. And just a few dollars a month, like the price of a cup of coffee or a beer, can really help the show and what we do. It lets us bring you more episodes as quickly as we can because the cash lets me dedicate more of my time to the show so I don't have to faff around elsewhere trying to pay rent and eat. Uh, also, you get bonus merch if you do support the show on Patreon. Uh, we've got badges, bookmarks and exclusive episodes on offer as well for our backers. Uh, There's a few tiers that you can sign up for. Just $1 a month is a simple thank you to the show. It lets me know that you like what we're doing, that you're part of the writing community on the show, uh, and you want to say thanks. A few more dollars a month gets you a badge on top of that. A few more dollars gets you a bookmark and a badge. A few more dollars, but still not a lot, just $7 a month. Uh, it gets all of that and it also gives you the chance to tell me questions that you'd like to ask some of the authors that we have on and then every few months I will make an episode especially for you 
no one else will be able to hear it. It's just those backers over on Patreon that will get the specific answers to their writing questions by some of the most successful authors around. I love the fact that you're there and that you listen every week and that you tell uh, other writing mates of yours to listen to the show and that you tweet about it online and you stick on Instagram and that you email me your thanks. I love all of that. And if you would like to go a little step further, that would be amazing. Just drop us a few dollars every month and become a backer over on Patreon. It just really helps the show carry on. You can find us and donate any money that you can over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Hi, my name is Ahmed Dani Ramadan. Uh, my book, The Clothesline Swing, is out right now. And my advice to you is that we as writers are extremely self-critical we look at our work uh, with a critical eye and we are the hardest on ourselves. And I think that you need to look at your work with kindness. Anything that you write is something that you haven't written before. And I think that that's deserving celebration. I think you should be kind to yourself. I think you should continue writing and stop being so critical on yourself. There are critics out there that will do the job for you. If you missed last week's episode with Ahmad Dani Ramadan, please, you need to catch up on it. I think one of the most uh, authentic and and genuine uh, interviews that we've done, really, in that his story, where he came from, how he has lived his life, directly influenced his debut novel in a way that not many others do. I mean, I know that everyone says that your first novel is often autobiographical, and I guess mostly they are, but just strangely not in the same way as Danny's. It's twisting, it's turning, it's just written in a such a fantastical way that you very rarely see in a debut book. Uh, it's Akmad Danny Ramadan. If you missed that, do catch up right now. We've got the whole thing over at writersroutine.com. Let's get back into it then with Abby Elphinstone, uh, the kids' author, uh, all about her fantastic new book, It's Rumble Star, and it stars Casper Tock, who suddenly stumbles upon a secret world that creates weather. And, and we talk about writing for kids in this half and what she thinks the secrets to that are and why also so many people get it wrong in her eyes. Uh, also, we chat about the campaign that she's part of to save the world and we pick things up talking about characters how they form, how much she knows about them, uh, how her characters appear to her. Like, do they begin as a tiny idea that she needs to work through, that she needs to sort out, that she needs to mind map? Or, very simply, do they just speed into her mind fully formed? So some of the characters, yeah, arrive fully formed. Um, there was, for World Book Day, I wrote a novella, a short story um, called Everdark, which was a prequel to the Unmapped Chronicles. And there was a monkey called Bartholomew who arrived fully formed in a trilby carrying a briefcase um, and had sort of aristocratic um, heritage. And, and he, he was just done. It was so easy. Casper um, Tock was a little harder to get to know. Um, and my editor always says with me, in the first draft, I send her the adventure, the straight up plot. And then the second draft, I give her the heart and the, the character development. And very much with Casper, it was like, he is a roughly formed boy. He was my first ever ever hero. I'd done heroines before. Um, and I, I got the idea from my brother who'd said, um, I said, well, who should I write about? What kind of a boy? And, sh- and he said, um, what about a boy who is sort of, likes to control absolutely everything, likes to write lists um, and timetables and lives life according to his timetables and to-do lists. And then he's thrown into an adventure and he realises that life is as one of the snow trolls says, wiggly splat. You know, it's unpredictable, you know, it's chaotic, but it's actually 
beautiful in its brokenness. Um, and so he was a character that I had to get to learn and the uh, get to know and the setting, the obstacles that he ran into were the things that helped define him and helped me understand him. So yeah, he was a work in progress for sure. What about the antagonist then? Just because this is a fairly political in the, you know, you're talking about mm. big themes. So you've got this yeah. bit at the end, which calling all eco warriors. Um, I know that you care a lot about the ocean and, and there's, yeah. uh, you know, with climate change and everything like that when you're writing a book with this message and there needs to be a baddie in it, yeah. how are you thinking about them? What qualities are you, are, you, are you sat there thinking, right, I need to write a baddie. What's scary? What does it need to be? It's difficult. Some, some baddies I read are almost likeable and that makes them even more deliciously bad. Um, with this, um, the model for this series is a little bit like C.S. Lewis's Narnia books in that they're standalone adventures um, linked in this magical world. Was that always going to be the case very quickly? Yeah. I um, did you know it would be a series? I did know it would be a series, but I also really firmly wanted to write books that were standalone adventures but linked in, in this world because I'd loved the Narnia books as a child. I loved the links between each book that you have Lucy Pevensey in Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe and then she appears again um, and then her cousin appears, used to scrub. And, you know, I like the way that characters dovetailed and and you didn't have to read them in order. Um, so I knew I was going to attempt this. And it was only, like, Rumble Star is my sixth book. It was only my sixth book that I felt brave enough to attempt this kind of model. Um, my Dream Snatcher series, my first trilogy, had been based in our world with a little bit of magic. Um, Sky Song was set in the fictional world of Erkenwald. And, yeah, this has the portal portal moment. So the structure I knew I wanted to follow. And I reread the Narnia books recently as, as research and was struck by how overt the religious themes were. But when I read them as a child, I didn't notice that. I loved them for the adventure story they were. So with you saying, yeah, I'm dealing with climate change, I'm dealing with vast topics um, that, yeah, we're all facing at the moment. But I think hopefully it doesn't come across as too didactic or dogmatic. At the end, there's a, yeah, a notes saying calling all eco-warriors. But at the story itself... Um, climate change, global warming is a reference, but it's not. It's not sort of a banging drum. It's not a call to action in that sense. So you're so you're baddie Maud. Yeah, to answer so that, that's, okay, that's yeah, fine. Yeah. That was me. It's it's my it's my own bad. <laughs> um, they're not intended to be a metaphor for anything when you're. No, not necessarily. I think Morg is this evil harpy who um, lives in Everdark, and normally a phoenix presides over the unmapped kingdoms and the phoenix keeps the magic going and um if the magic keeps going in the unmapped kingdoms then our world is filled with brilliant weather but the, the moment that the phoenix dies and morg this harpy rises from the ashes things change so she's not a metaphor for anything particularly um it's more that she's just there as a an archetypal baddie um and in, in different books she takes on a different form and she uses different powers of manipulation um and each quest is very different. There's the overarching aim is the same. She wants to steal all the unmapped magic um, so that our world, the far away, disappears and she can rule the unmapped kingdoms. Um, so it's tied into climate change, but she's not a metaphor for some horror that we humans are doing <laughs> to the world. I often know an atmosphere more than I know concrete plot moments. Um, I know a feeling that I want to get. It's often at the end. I know what sort of a note it's almost like I envisage it as music I know what kind of note I want to hit um and I, I do plan really thoroughly so I do often know 
what's going to happen. But that's only when I've gone into the story. When I had the idea initially, it's just it's an impression, an atmosphere, a feeling. Um, but even with these rigorous plans, I do veer off piece from them. Um, it's just that it gives me yeah something concrete to go on. Um, and I've just been asked by my US editor and my UK editor to send, um, I had to send them an outline, a detailed plot outline for books two, three, and four. So it's a quartet in this series. I just spent weeks thinking, I just can't think that far ahead. But then I understand from their point of view, they're like, we need to see where this is going. And if they're standalone adventures linked in this world, you must have a, a feeling of where the arc's going. So it took a long time, but I forced myself to really think about where it was going to go. Well, let me talk to you about that arc quickly. Mm. I, th I think if you were to name possibly the two most famous children's series recently, you're talking Harry Potter yeah. uh, and His Dark Materials. Yeah. And they were clearly written in mind. J.K. Rowling, I would imagine, knew how it is yeah, going she, to she end. Yeah, she it all out, yeah. The, the, there's the, I don't know, it might be an old wives' tale that she had written the little 19 years later thing yeah. or whatever. Um, how about you? So with these four books, do you have a sense of Casper's um, story across all four novels? No, because Casper doesn't appear again. Okay. So Casper Tock and Utterly Thankless, which is the girl that he meets in Rumblestar, um, the quest, well, the first, the plot is of Rumblestar is based around those two characters. And it's Casper learning to be brave and learning about friendships. Um, you then get to the next book, Jungle Drop, which is the one I'm planning at the moment and about to write. Um, and that comes out next spring. Um, that's a totally new protagonist. It's actually twins, um, the Petty Squabble twins, and they fight nonstop. And they're going to learn about um, kindness and being kind to one another, to the environment, because that's an overarching theme, but also perhaps hardest of all, being kind to themselves. It's very hard to be kind to oneself. So that will then be the sort of underlying theme, character motivation there. Um, in the book, so Casper Tock, who while he won't feature as the main character in Jungle Drop, the second book, he'll frame the story so he'll, it'll be 70 years older and Casper is too old to go into Jungle Drop. But he knows a way to get the Petty Squabble twins in. So you've got these tiny links between books that writers, uh, sorry, readers who are fond of series hopefully will like. Like with the, um, the Narnia books, mm -hmm. you know, Jill Pohl or Eustace Scrub linking, you know, being in several books. Um, but there will always be a different protagonist. Um, and I think the third book is Crackledawn, and that's um, going to be a kid who lives out on a um, trash pile out in Cambodia, Musty Mountain, and he finds something in the trash that happens to be a phoenix tear, which is what transports you to these magical kingdoms. And that book will be about trusting. He doesn't trust grown-ups, doesn't trust adults. So I know in every single book, I know what kind of a character... I'm going to write about and the setting. So I know that Jungle Drop is glow in the dark rainforests mm. and that kind of thing. I know that Crackle Dawn is a sea kingdom. I know Rumble Star is a sky kingdom. So I know the setting and the character. And then I just build the plot within that. What age is this aimed at? Um, eight to twelves is the kind of heartland of. What's the biggest challenge? Because. Uh, I work a lot with kids stuff and I know that telling stories for children is is tough because it's so hard to accurately pitch what an eight to 12 year yeah. old is going to talk like i mean if, if if you often i think a mistake that people make is they think they're talking to an eight-year-old and they're actually talking to a five-year-old yeah uh, what, what are the challenges for you of writing children's fiction and why do you think so far you've got it right um well, that's very kind to say i got it right um i think yeah you've you've not you've got to be really careful not to patronize a child 
never talk down to them don't dumb down to them um because they can sense that immediately it's like if you're doing an author visit a school visit they can tell immediately if you go in at some sort of really horribly infantilizing angle uh, i can't remember who said this but someone said if you're having a lot of fun writing your book it's usually not the right book for children <laughs> because there's a tendency to look at your own childhood possibly through rose-tinted spectacles possibly with a lot of nostalgia and write that the book that you would have wanted to read back then I think one of the things you have to do as a children's author is reach right back to your 10-year-old self and imagine the thrills and the fears and the excitements of being 10 years old. But don't write a book that would just be what you want. I think you have to think a little bit more currently as well about what children, what they're experiencing right now. Um, and so you have to be a little bit careful not to make it too personal. And also flowery language, um, avoid too many adverbs metaphors similes beautiful sentences um sometimes detract from a plot from a story and it's brilliant not to dumb down to kids and to write beautiful prose Catherine Rundle um she writes incredibly beautifully um but no word is wasted um some people I think fall into the trap of trying to sound too erudite or too poetic and that detracts from the story and the characters and the plot how much do you think about the tone and the voice that this book will be read in as in the voice that a, a child will uh, use in yeah. their mind to read the story so this is the first book I've written since becoming a mother and everybody so far is saying that the tone is really different and I don't know whether it's because I imagine well I have a reader in mind now I imagine my son reading these books um but something has shifted in my narrative tone with with Rumble Star and the Unmapped Chronicles and I think a lot of people are saying they're good to read aloud. Um, and possibly that's because when I write, I I speak. <laughs> so I say my sentences aloud as I type. This is probably why I don't work in a cafe, why I work in a shed alone. Um, but I think when you read a story aloud as you write, you hear the rhythms of the sentences. You're not really in danger of making sentences too long or flowery because you've said them aloud and you realise, oh, that's just pretentious. Cut. So... Yeah, I think that helped me. Um, and yeah, again, not dumbing down. Right at the start, you mentioned that you, you had, had written books when you were a teacher, which you then sent off to 96 yeah. agents or whatever, and they were all rejected. Without making this answer an impassioned, I was right the whole time. <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> why, do you think, why do you think they passed? Why, what, what changed in, in your storytelling before it was yeah. finally accepted? So they definitely weren't good enough. And... It, it, it's the best thing in my career that they were rejected. If somebody, if one publisher had taken on those books, they just wouldn't have been read. And as a writer, it's brutal out there. You get one shot pretty much. Like if you, if your first book doesn't work, it's very difficult then to get another book deal because you're judged on your past sales. And it has happened. There are some brilliant children's authors who have done um, books that haven't worked and have managed to then turn things round, but it is really hard, harder even than starting from a blank slate with no deal. Um, so why did they fail? Um, the narrative voice was too um, contrived. It was too patronising. It was what I thought children wanted to read rather than just, you know, writing boldly. Um, the plot was really scattered and, and lacking in coherence and structure. It was sort of long and wobbling it needed to be tighter shorter chapters that really helped me um 
helps kids as well. They like short chapters. They feel a sense of achievement. They've got to the end of one, on to the next, you know, just one more chapter before bed. And if you've got long, sprawling chapters, that's very hard. Um, so it was voice structure. Um, they always said the humour was there, which is nice. And weirdly, Rumble Star is the book that um, critics are saying is funniest. Um, How did you change that then? Are you discovering all of this through your own analysis? No, it was really brutal rejection letters being like... Um, you're funny, you made us laugh out loud. Um, or there are elements of magic here that are really original, um, but the voices do contrive. So they, they were really honest. So I took their feedback and worked on it really hard. And I think as a writer, you've got to be humble enough to take criticism, determined enough to bounce back and, and to use it um, for, 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 the, for the good. Um, it's difficult because with writing, it's not a quick fix. It's not like a maths problem, which you're doing it wrong, so do it this way. It's so subtle how you've got to change things. Um, you know, the structure isn't quite right. Well, how do you change the structure, you know? But concrete things like shorter chapters work and having a driving force in a quest and a, a, a main character arc. It took me a long time, probably up until Sky Song. So I wrote a trilogy before Sky Song, but Sky Song was the first book that was made Waterton's Book of the Month and that was my bestseller before this one. And that was when I finally learned how to do a character arc, where my character changed and grew and, and learned something. So for me, I'm still learning. Um, I look back at things in my books and I cringe. I think, how did I, you know, how can I get away with that? Um, and so I enjoy that hopefully it's a craft that you hone and you get better at again and again and again. One of my friends and um, a multi-million selling author, Lauren St. John, um, she's a wildlife activist for Born Free um, and her books are just brilliant at championing um, the environment and, and brave kids who are going to save it. Um, she set up Authors for Oceans, which is a group of illustrators and authors um, who are campaigning to reduce the amount of plastic dumped in the oceans. So there are various strands to it. There was a competition where lots of us authors in our school visits would have a slide and um, we talk about the fact that kids could um, build a sculpture out of um, recycled plastics of an endangered creature and their winning and well the entries sorry would be judged by the makers of Paddington 2 and the ambassadors for Born Free and it would be put on show in the maritime exhibition in London and the museum sorry so there's a competition um there are lots of in 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 store events in bookshops and things where we've written lots of resources for booksellers to use in conjunction with our books that help kids become aware of how they can reduce the amount of plastic that's put in oceans um and there are lots of kind of prizes like we've auctioned off ourselves <laughs> as um, like to go and speak in schools for free um, to do our normal author talk, but also to you know talk about books, but to talk about campaigns that we believe in, like Authors for Oceans. Um, there's a really cute pledge as well, which is just a really simple pledge of ways in which kids can um, be more eco at home, particularly in regards to plastic. Because I think a lot of kids want to help, but they don't really know how. <laughs> so this is just really concrete advice, being like, if you do this, this will have a knock-on effect, and this and this. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Abby Elphinstone for coming on the show. Uh, you can find out loads more about her book, Rumble Star, the first in her Unmapped Chronicles series over on our website. And we've also got something up there as well uh, about Authors for Oceans, the fantastic campaign that she's part of, uh, all about conservation and teaching kids about the environment. Now, next week, we're chatting to the winner of the Best Crime and Thriller Book of the Year at the British Book Awards earlier on this year. 
Louise Candish will be on the show talking about her hugely successful Our House. And we'll speak about her brand new one following up on that success. It's called Those People. That's on the way next week. If you've enjoyed the show, if you want to help us out and say thank you, you can please become a backer over on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Just a couple of dollars a month really helps the show out and it can bag you some writers routine merch as well. Uh, Give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram as well. And if you've got a spare minute, uh, I'd love for you to leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you next week with Louise Candlish on Writer's Routine. Bye. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.